Avoids pressure once. Got hit as he threw. And South Carolina will survive. Bam, Martin Scott lives up to his name. It's a four-game win streak for Shane Beamer and this South Carolina squad. And they've found their points, just like his dad did, using Beamer ball. First touch of the game, a 100-yard kickoff return for Xavier Leggett. Looks like Shane got a Gatorade shower at some point. Oh, it's all about family. They're back on the <laughs> That is awesome. Welcome to the Chatting Yardage Podcast, presented by Sports Drink. Now, here's your host, Cam Matthews. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood college football podcast. Welcome to... Chatting Yardage, part of the Chatting Average family and brought to you by our friends at Sports Drink. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the show. I'm your host, Mr. Cam Matthews. You can find me on Twitter at HeyCam93. You can also follow the show at Chatting Yardage. Uh, coming in, episode nine, as we get ahead, get ready to take in week nine of college football. Uh, a bit of a bit of a late uh, late release on this episode. If you're listening to this right as it drops, it is probably early to mid afternoon on Friday. Usually, I try to have this show out uh, by you know by 5 a.m. on Friday mornings. But uh, I started a new job earlier in the year, which requires a little bit of travel here and there, and I've been been out of town most of the week this week. So playing a bit of catch up here on Friday just to get this podcast out for you, but. Uh, nonetheless, here is the show. I want to thank you for listening uh, wherever you listen, however you listen. Uh, we thank you for just being a subscriber to the podcast. Uh, I want to also remind you to check out the uh, the parent podcast to Chatting Yardage, which is Chatting Average, as uh, Alex Butler and I round out our third season of that show uh, here in the next few weeks as the baseball season uh, finishes itself up. A lot of good fun over there. So if you're if you're an Atlanta Braves fan or just a baseball fan in general, be sure to check that out if you have not already. Week eight, uh, and what a fun week it was. You know, I think uh, we we got some answers to some questions about the legitimacy of some teams. Uh, I think uh, it it kind of narrowed in a clearer path. For, for quite a few teams. Not to say that anything is necessarily set in stone quite yet. We're still not at that point. There's still plenty of football left to be played in, in various conferences before anything's truly decided. But, you know, I think we got a lot better idea of where certain teams stand, where certain conferences stand. And, you know, and that's part of this season. There's still a lot of undefeated teams out there, though, uh, as, as we look around the rankings and everything, which is really fun to see, you know, a lot of teams in the mix and quite a few that you didn't necessarily expect to be here uh, at that point. We'll go ahead and take a look at last week's pick six games of the week. Again, the pick six games 
are the six games each and every single week that I find interesting, and I believe you should too. Looking back on that, uh, Clemson takes down Syracuse by a final score of 27 to 21. This game was a thriller. You know, th- this was one that that the Syracuse Orange really controlled for the majority of the game. Um, you know, Clemson benched their starting quarterback, DJU, uh, you know, after a couple of rough turnovers that Syracuse was able to capitalize on. And, and then just down the stretch, you know, Clemson was able to pull this one out. And Syracuse, you know, certainly hurt themselves late in the game too. Um, but this was just uh, one of those tight-knit games that I think as the afternoon kind of went on, you know, this is one of those that you you text your buddies and be like, hey, are you guys seeing this? Or, you know, if you're in a group chat, you're all kind of keeping up with it. So, uh, you know, a, a good performance really by Syracuse, who now is only 6-1 and one on the season. Clemson improves to 8-0 and oh, uh, on the year and is pretty much in the driver's seat uh, for the Atlantic Division of the ACC as they remain undefeated. LSU takes down Ole Miss, handing the Rebels... Their uh, their first loss of the season, final score forty five to twenty. You know, I, I mentioned last week that this was going to be probably the toughest game in terms of you know in terms of location so far for Ole Miss this season. I mean, sure they took down Kentucky earlier in the year, but that game was at home, and you had the home field advantage behind you, and you had a couple of key you know Kentucky mistakes in that game that that helped you out. But with this one, you know, going into death, you know, going into the other Death Valley, as I said last week, going into Baton Rouge uh, against LSU daytime game, you know, forty-five to twenty. I think it, I don't think it necessarily deters anything about the season that Ole Miss is having. I still think they're a very good football team, but I don't think they are as good as the number seven ranking that they had last week. And it seems like as time goes on this season, you know, that number seven ranking, number six, number seven, keeps you know keeps having some struggles. Uh, week in, week out, so, uh, you know, it, it makes you wonder beyond the top five or so just how good, uh, you know, other teams are further down into the rankings. Speaking of rankings, uh, one of our other ranked matchups on Saturday was uh, was Oregon and UCLA, number nine and number ten, squaring off. Uh, Oregon comes out with a big win, 45-30, to 30. A, you know, 15-point win, and I think that score is still a little closer than what this game really was. You know, Oregon was in the driver's seat in this one. And we'll get into the Ducks a little bit later during four-down territory, but I think I think there's a lot of interest in, in Oregon right now, um, and, and they're a team to kind of keep your eye on. Oklahoma State takes down Texas, final score 41-34. to uh, Game here in which, you know, Texas was, you know, in the driver's seat and coming late into the game in Oklahoma State puts 14 on the board in the fourth quarter. Good little come-from-behind win at Oklahoma State. Uh, they improved to 6-1 and one on the year. Meanwhile, Texas is at 5-3. and three. Uh, TCU with a thriller uh, against Kansas State. 38-28 is your final there. You know, uh, down by double digits in the second half. Uh, and TCU and that offense is able to come back and take down the Wildcats by, you know, defeating them by 10. Uh, TCU remains undefeated, and, you know, I mentioned that there are several teams that are of interest right now in terms of them being undefeated or in terms of their ranking, and TCU's right there 
Uh, but they got a they got a tough one this weekend. That that's coming up. We'll talk about that in a bit. And then Texas Tech, a, a bit of a surprise in this one, takes down West Virginia, forty eight to ten. And 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 you know, I said last week that I thought this was going to be a really high scoring contest, a good back and forth kind of game between two you know, very evenly matched kind of teams. But Texas Tech handled business, taking them down, taking down the Mountaineers by a 38-point deficit. Uh, You know, West Virginia, a bit of a tough go of things. Uh, Be playing at home this Saturday against an interesting opponent. Uh, You'll have to wonder if maybe they got a little little juice going into that one, Uh, which, again, that will be part of the pick six segment uh, toward the end of the show. We'll go ahead and dive into... The rest of the scoreboard for week eight, uh, if I can get my scores pulled up, there we go. So I tell you, we're, we're just we're just running and gunning this week, trying to get this podcast out for you fine people. Uh, we'll look at the ACC. Virginia takes down Georgia Tech sixteen to nine last Thursday night, October twentieth. Again, that saw the Georgia Tech uh, quarterback run out of bounds to end the game, which was still interesting, and his comments after the game were even more interesting. Uh, so, yeah, there's that. Duke surprises uh, quite a few, and I don't think it's necessarily a surprise that they won, given that they were playing Miami. You know, Miami is not having a good year this year, but uh, given the way that they won, they won 45-21 to over the Hurricanes. Miami, I believe, had eight turnovers in this game, seven or eight. Uh, more than you need to be able to come out with a victory, just in a you know just a crushing loss for Miami at this point in Mario Cristobal's tenure, uh, year one just not going very well. Uh, Wake Forest handles Boston College fairly easily, forty-three to fifteen is your final there, and then Louisville with a bit of a surprise uh, over Pitt, twenty-four to ten is your final at Louisville. Uh, now over to the Big Twelve for Week Eight. Baylor takes down Kansas 35-23. Kansas continues to slide a little bit after what was one of the the better stories uh, of the season to, to really start out this year. But the Baylor Bears take care of business against the Jayhawks. And then, uh, yeah, that actually three of our games last week from pick six were from Big 12. You know, Texas Tech, Oklahoma State, and TCU winning their respective games last week. Uh, on to the Big Ten. Ohio State handles business against Iowa, 54-10. to Iowa's offense continues to have its struggles. And at this point, you know, Kirk Ferentz has done tremendous things for that for that, for that program, but at this point, I think you have to wonder if it is time to, to move on. Uh, Penn State, big win at home. Wideout game against Minnesota, 45-17 is your final there. Golden Gophers continuing just to have a bit of a, a bit of a tough season. Rutgers takes down Indiana, 24-17 is your final. Wisconsin, good win over Purdue, 35-24 there. And then Maryland uh, with a, another quiet, you know, fairly decent season, uh, takes down Northwestern, 31 to 24. Maryland now six and two uh, on the season. Just kind of one of those quiet teams that you feel like you don't ever hear about. But I tell you, if you look up and see them on your schedule, you might be a little concerned about that. Now over to the SEC week eight scoreboard for the Southeastern Conference. Alabama takes down Mississippi State 30 to six, a game in which Bama just about shut out. Mississippi State until the final seconds of the game. Uh, South Carolina takes down Texas A&M. A big, big, big win there, uh, as you heard in the in the cold open to the show. In fact, I didn't realize this at the time, and had I realized it, I might have considered it for a pick six game last week, but 
South Carolina had never defeated Texas A&M up until that game on Saturday. Uh, Texas A&M had an 8-0 record against the Gamecocks, and so a huge win for that program as things continue to slide with Jimbo Fisher at the helm. They're now 3-4 and four on the year. Beamer ball, uh, five and two on the season, and they they are ranked this week. We'll get to that momentarily, but just another another good win at home uh, for South Carolina and, and for Shane Beamer. Uh, Tennessee handles things against UT Martin, one of those games that was scheduled eons ago and, and had to be played. Uh, 65 to 24 is your final score there, and then Missouri just sneaks by Vanderbilt, 17 to 14 at Missouri. And then we'll round things out with the Pac-12 Week 8 scoreboard. Uh, Stanford takes down Arizona State 15-14. to Slimmest of margins in that one. Oregon State with a, just a pretty straightforward win against Colorado. 42-9 to is your final. And then Washington with a good win over Cal 28-21. to A game that I think a lot of us, including myself, expected Washington to have a bit of a better handle on. But hey, a win is a win. Look at now at the top 25 coming into week nine. Uh, your new rankings, of course, come out every single Sunday afternoon. Uh, new additions to the top 25 include South Carolina at 25 and LSU jumping all the way up to 18th after taking down Ole Miss. Uh, your your highest risers in this week. Tulane jumps up two spots. Penn State jumps up three spots. Wake Forest also jumps up three spots. Uh, tied with USC at number 10. So the Demon Deacons into the top 10 now. Tied with the Trojans. They've got they've had a heck of a season so far. Uh, and they've got a couple of a couple of games coming up that could uh, that could really cement things for them in terms of bowl game uh, coming after after the season concludes. So uh, definitely a team to keep at, keep an eye on. Uh, some of your biggest drops, UCLA drops three spots to number 12. Ole Miss drops eight spots all the way down to number 15. Kansas State drops five to number 22. And then departing the rankings this week, Texas falls from 20. Mississippi State falls out from number 24. Your top four in the, uh, in the top 25 for week nine, Georgia number one, Ohio State number two. Tennessee, number three, and Michigan, number four. No changes there, nor any changes for number five and six, being Clemson and Alabama, uh, respectively. So that's all I've got for the opening rant this week. We'll go ahead and dive into our first segment of the program as we do each and every single week. This is Four Down Territory. First down. The undefeated ranks were thinned by three teams on Saturday when Syracuse, UCLA, and Ole Miss suffered their first losses. In the world of a four-team college football playoff, those defeats are extremely costly, but they will be less so when the field expands to 12 teams. Starting possibly in 2024 or 2025, but definitely by the following year in 2026, there will be a 12-team playoff in place. The four top teams may still end up in the semifinals, but the field will give more teams realistic chances to make the single elimination field late in the regular season and set up more win-or-go-home games. So at this point, a 12-team field would consist of the six highest-rated conference champions and the six six highest-rated at-large teams. The format most discussed would feature a first-round bye for the top four seeds and the first-round games to be held on campus. The top four seeds would be the four highest-rated conference champions. So, what would the bracket look like if the field were unveiled this week? 
Now, of course, these seeds that we're about to discuss are based on the latest AP rankings, but allowing for conference champions, allowing for conference champions to be the top four seeds. So, first round matchups would include number twelve Cincinnati at number five Tennessee. That winner would go on to play number four seed TCU. Number 11, Wake Forest, would take on number 6, Michigan. The winner would go on to play number 3 seed, Clemson. Your number 10 seed, USC, would take on number 7, Alabama, in the first round. And the winner of that game would go on to play the number 2 seed, Ohio State. And your other first round matchup would be number 9, Oklahoma State, at number 8, Oregon who would then go on to play the number one seed, Georgia. So for those of you keeping score at home, your one through 12 seed playoff at this point would be Georgia number one, Ohio State number two, Clemson number three, TCU number four, Tennessee five, Michigan six, Alabama seven, Oregon eight, Oklahoma State nine, USC 10, Wake Forest 11, and Cincinnati 12. Sounds pretty interesting to me. I can't wait to see it. Second down. With Zykevius Walker and Landon King both announcing their intention to transfer away from Auburn, a source has told Auburn Daily that Auburn football head coach Brian Harson is telling players that have asked for red shirts that their only options are to quit the football program or enter the transfer portal. The NCAA Board of Governors has adopted rule changes that prohibit players from entering the transfer portal outside of defined, quote, windows a 45-day period that begins the day after championship selections are made, is the first window, and a second window coming May 1st through May 15th. There is also a provision that allows a 30-day portal entry period for student-athletes who, quote, experience head coach changes or have athletics aids reduced, canceled, or not renewed, seemingly taking away momentum to fire a head coach during the season. Converted tight end Landon King only has one catch for 24 yards on the season, he was reportedly asked to lose weight to transition to wide receiver in the offseason, but has received only limited snaps so far on the year and has requested a red shirt to preserve eligibility. Attempts to verify King's stats on Auburn's roster were met with a 404 message indicating his online profile had already been wiped from the roster as of this Tuesday night, just hours after the social media message was posted by King. Of Auburn's 18 signees on the 2021 recruiting class, Nine have already left the program, including five of the top ten. Some transferred in the offseason. Defensive lineman Marquise Robinson entered the transfer portal in January of 2022, only to withdraw in April and remain with the Tigers. Cornerback A.D. Diamond, a freshman from Mobile, has not officially made an announcement, but is, is not currently listed on Auburn's online roster as of this week. According to a source close to the Auburn football program, it has been reported that Harson was refusing to allow players to request a redshirt without a medical reason for not playing. It was being referred to as, quote, you play or you go, unquote, forcing players to prematurely give up on their 2022 season in order to not lose a full season of eligibility. When asked about the, quote, earlier this week at a press conference, Brian Harson finally spoke on it saying, quote, well, like I said earlier, obviously, every player that comes in, we know who has them. We monitor that, and we do every single week. It all goes back to what is needed and who's out there putting themselves in position to be able to play and who can help us play. We monitor that as a staff, and we continue to monitor that with guys. If they're not going to be able to go out there and play for us, and there's guys ahead of them, and they're young players, if they have a red shirt year, 
that's usually when they're able to use it. But overall, every guy that comes in here, they're coming in here to play. That's what we go through every single week. What is that plan, and how do we utilize our players to help us and their teammates to be successful and go win ball games? The coaches monitor, all right, how many times those guys have, have played, how many games those guys have played, and how we've used them. At the end of the day, guys are here to play, but we want to make sure that we allow our guys to do that. Well, Brian, if you're allowing your guys to play, then why do you have so many transferring out at this point so early in the season? Third down. There was little doubt when Oregon signed on to play Georgia in Atlanta's Mercedes-Benz Stadium that it would be a major challenge for the Ducks. Even though nobody could have known the exact circumstances of a game four years into the future, flying across the country to play an SEC power in its backyard is never easy. But Oregon's calculation in taking the game was sound. In the college football playoff era, where strength of schedule is supposed to count for quite a bit, it looked like a low-risk proposition. If you happen to win that game, it boosts your credibility and perception of your conference. If you lose to an elite team in what amounts to a road game, it shouldn't necessarily wreck your playoff ambitions. At least in theory, you'll get some credit for merely playing that game instead of scheduling an opener against Montana State. But that supposition could be put to the test by a score that poses a major quandary for the selection committee. Georgia 49, Oregon 3. The moment that game ended, the playoff should have been the last thing on the minds of any Oregon fan, player, coach, or administrator. It was such a failure to launch, such a non-conference resume eyesore, that it would have been tough to envision the Ducks becoming relevant at all in the college football playoff discussion. But after an impressive 45-30 win over previously unbeaten UCLA last Saturday, the notion that Oregon could finish as a one-loss Pac-12 champion with a legitimate playoff case now doesn't seem so far-fetched. We'll have a slightly better sense of how the selection committee views Oregon next Tuesday when they release the first weekly rankings. But at the moment, the Ducks will, no, will be no higher than number eight behind the seven remaining unbeaten teams and Alabama. And, of course, it's no sure thing that Oregon will cruise the rest of the way home with a tough game on November 19th against Utah and the Pac-12 title game. But as the committee evaluates where the season stands now, Oregon's loss to Georgia muddies up the picture in a way that will test what those 13 individuals value in a football team and how much room they will allow for interpretation of an undeniably bad result. On one hand, had Oregon indeed scheduled Montana State on September 3rd instead of traveling three time zones to play the defending national champions, the Ducks would almost certainly be in a position to control their own destiny. At the same time, you can't simply ignore the impact of one game in a relatively short season, especially when that result suggested such a wide gap between Oregon and another playoff caliber team. But this is why theoretically, the committee exists in the first place. To balance those ideas and debate what one loss in a difficult season opener says about a team that has clearly improved week by week. It would be foolish to simply write Oregon off because of the Georgia game. Not only were the Ducks up, up against it in terms of opponent and venue, it was the first game for a 36-year-old Dan Lanning, Oregon's third head coach in the past six seasons. Now, that isn't an excuse but it has to be a factor in how Oregon's total season is viewed. If we already had a 12-team a playoff, it wouldn't matter at all. As long as the Ducks won the Pac-12, 
they'd be in. But the standards to get into the four-team playoff are much higher. Since its inception in 2014, only two teams have gotten in with a loss by two touchdowns or more. One of them was Ohio State, which recovered from an early 35-21 loss at home to Virginia Tech. And the other was Georgia in 2017, which got rolled at Auburn 40-17, but was able to turn the table on the Tigers a few weeks later in the SEC championship game. Oregon is going to undoubtedly need help to even reach a point where the committee weighs a 46-point loss to Georgia versus the rest of its body of work. As things stand, the SEC champion and the winner of Ohio State-Michigan will have playoff spots locked up. If Clemson and TCU can run the table as unbeaten uh, power conference champions, it would be hard for the committee to jump anyone over them. But it's unlikely those scenarios will play out quite so cleanly. This is college football after all, and it won't take much to bring Oregon into the conversation if the Ducks are sitting there as a 12-1 Pac-12 champion. Based on the eye test, it would be difficult right now to say Oregon doesn't belong with those teams. They beat BYU by three touchdowns. They gutted out a tough win over Washington State. They had 545 yards of offense against UCLA, and quarterback Bo Nix is playing lights-out football right now with 17 touchdowns and just three interceptions on the season. Reasonable people can disagree, but it would not be hard to envision Oregon beating a Clemson or a TCU on a neutral field right now, given their current momentum. If the goal is to get the four best teams in the playoff, growth should matter. No team is the same in December as they were in the season opener. But results have to matter too, and part of the way you establish a pecking order to interpret those results is through non-conference games. In that respect, Oregon and the entire Pac-12 have utterly failed. The league owns just three wins over other, uh, over other power conference teams, Washington over Michigan State, Washington State over, Washington, over, over Wisconsin, and Stanford over Notre Dame. None of those games help Oregon in this case. History suggests that the committee will punish Oregon significantly for playing so poorly against Georgia. It's just hard to flush a 46-point loss from memory even if it doesn't correlate to how they look now. Combined with the Pac-12 failing to put a team in the playoff since the 2016 season, Oregon has a lot to overcome. But still, if the committee prioritizes fairness, it must recognize that no team in the country faced a more difficult Week 1 assignment than the Ducks. They could have taken the easy way out, but they didn't. They scheduled ambitiously, took their medicine, and have improved week by week to become one of the best teams in the country right now. That's supposed to be the advantage in having a committee instead of computers determining who plays for a national championship. But, in reality, teams just haven't received much leeway for scheduling games they're likely going to lose. If the Ducks get boxed out of the playoff because they chose to play Georgia instead of, say, Georgia State, it might not be completely unfair. But it will be typical of an exacerbating process that has outlived its usefulness and spurred urgency in the upcoming expansion to 12 teams. Again, there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer here. It's all a matter of interpretation. But if Oregon continues on its current path, how the committee either punishes or excuses that loss to Georgia could end up being the most interesting decision of the playoff era. Fourth down. The longest losing streak in college football is officially over. With their 37-26 victory over the Long Island Sharks, 
the Wagner College Seahawks have won for the first time in 1,119 days. Wagner's last victory before this came on September 28, 2019, coincidentally also against Long Island. Following this, Wagner would go on to lose 25 games in a row. Now, both of these teams are in the Northeastern Conference, which only allows 45 full scholarships compared to the FCS standard of 63, or that other directional Eastern Conference, which allows the FBS standard of 85. Notable games in this losing streak included losing 59 to nothing to Syracuse in a game that was shortened to a 20-minute second half, losing to Rutgers 66-7, and losing to Sacred Heart in a lightning cancellation game. Well, hey, now that you've won one, let's go out and win two and get a winning streak going. How about it, Wagner? Now we'll send things over to the official chatting yardage mascot correspondent Alex Butler with this week's Mascot Minute. Hey everybody, this is Alex Butler here with this week's Mascot Minute, where we take a deep dive into some of your favorite collegiate mascots. This week, we're featuring the Nittany Lion from Penn State University. The Nittany Lion is Penn State's beloved mascot, storied in song and legend. It takes its name from Mount Nittany and the mountain lions that once roamed there and across Pennsylvania. Today, the lion mascot is ubiquitous across campus for sporting, philanthropic, or any event that inspires the cheer. We are Penn State. The Nittany Lion mascot as an idea dates back to 1907 when Penn State third baseman Harrison Joe Mason coined the phrase Nittany Lion on a baseball team trip to Princeton. Confronted with the Princeton Tiger while touring the campus, Mason came up with an impromptu response to defend the team's honor. He later recalled that he told the Princetonians, Well, up at Penn State, we have Mount Nittany right on our campus, where rules the Nittany Mountain Lion, who has never been beaten in a fair fight, so Princeton Tiger, look out. Penn State won that baseball game and later, as the editor of The Lemon, the college's first humor magazine, Mason proposed the idea of the Nittany Lion as the college's mascot. But there was confusion from the start about what kind of lion was intended. The 1907 La Vie, the Penn State yearbook, included a poem in its football section dedicated to Old Nittany, the king of Penzi State. But the picture was of an African lion. The confusion continued when the first man in the suit cavorted along the sidelines at a football game in 1921. Dick Hoffman, the first Nittany Lion mascot, borrowed the lion suit from a Penn State Thespians production, Androcles and the Lion, and wore it at games until 1923. This African lion reappeared occasionally until 1927, but then was banished by football coach Hugo Bezdick for bringing bad luck to the team. The mascot did not reappear until 1939, finally in the guise of a mountain lion. Today, the lion mascot at a Penn State football game is in his element, starting from the pregame routines. He works with cheerleaders, rousing the crowd, does push-ups after each score, and allows himself to be passed over the heads of the fans hand by hand up through the stands. Over the years, the lion has appeared at increasing numbers of athletic and philanthropic events as well. Everyone wants to be with the lion, it seems, and thanks to televised football games, the Nittany Lion mascot has become one of the best-known college sports mascots in the country. Are there any mascots that you'd like us to feature on the show? 
hit us up at Chatting Yardage on Twitter and let us know. Once again, this has been Alex Butler with your Mascot Minute. It's now time for this week's Pick 6 Games of the Week. Of course, these are six games that I find interesting for Week 9, and I believe you should too. Coming up first on the Pick 6, kind of hinted at it earlier, but we'll go ahead and dive into it now. Number 7, TCU, undefeated at 7-0, travels to West Virginia to take on the 3-4 Mountaineers team. This is a 12 p.m. kickoff game on ESPN. TCU, a 7.5-point favorite in this one. You know, we, we keep... TCU is one of those teams, and we have one every year, that is undefeated late into the season. And you sit there and you watch them and you wonder, like, okay, when is that loss coming? When is that potential upset coming? When are they going to you know, lose a game that they shouldn't? And TCU's played it close to the vest for a couple of weeks now, and this is a game that I believe that West Virginia, with the home crowd on their side, uh, you know, with, with the, uh, the environment there in Morganton, I think it, it could be a tough one. Uh, for the Horn Frogs, in terms of in terms of stats defensively, these two teams are very very similar in terms to yards allowed. TCU, of course, has a significant advantage when it comes to offense. West Virginia just hasn't quite been able to get the offense going this year that we've gotten used to in seasons of late. But a good test for the Horn Frogs here, and what is going to be a very very tough road game. Not necessarily going to put it on upset alert, but this is a game to be on the lookout for. A game I am going to put on upset alert is our next game of the week. Number nine, Oklahoma State takes on number 22, Kansas State. Kansas State, a one and a half point uh, favorite in this one. Uh, the Wildcats at five and two. Oklahoma State, of course, at six and one. This is a 3.30 p.m. kickoff on Fox. Uh, this is a game that Mike Gundy and his staff are going to have to be careful with because, you know, they've got one loss on the year, but inevitably, inevitably, we see it every season, Mike Gundy is going to Mike Gundy. Uh, and Oklahoma State is going to lose a game that they probably shouldn't just as they're getting some momentum going. So uh, this is a game that I think a lot of folks are, you know, putting eyeballs on and saying, okay, this might be a little bit closer of a game. Uh, than we suspect, because Kansas State is a sneaky good team that Oklahoma State is going to have to be careful with. Uh, third game of the week, couple of teams that we've never talked about on the show, but we'll, we'll dive into them now. Coastal Carolina travels to Marshall. This is a 7 p.m. kickoff on Saturday night on NFL Network of all channels. Uh, the Chanticleers at 6-1 take on the Thundering Herd at 4-3. Marshall, a 2.5-point favorite in this one. Uh, and Marshall actually heavily favored in the pick 'em to take this one, uh, take this one uh, to a victory. But you know, Coastal Carolina needs a good win here, and, and really in stats, you know, Coastal Carolina is above and beyond on paper what should be the better team. But again, you never know with some of these smaller schools how things are going to play out. So uh, it's certainly going to be a fun one to keep an eye on there. Game four. This week, Ole Miss travels to Texas A&M. Number 15, Ole Miss at 7-1 takes on the 3-4 A&M Aggies. 7.30 p.m. kickoff on SEC Network. Ole Miss only a one-and-a-half point favorite in this one. Uh, Lane Kevin's going to have to be careful here. Uh, th- this seems like one of those games that, you know, you had a bad loss against LSU last week. This seems like one of those games that if you're not careful, it could slip up and, and A&M could-, could end up knocking you out of this one. And then at that point, 
You're seven and two on the year. You're already at number fifteen. That's probably going to drop you into the low twenties. Uh, you know, the the, the Rebels going to have to be careful here on this one against a what should be a hungry A and M team. Both teams coming off of bad losses last week. Disappointing season uh, for A and M, absolutely, and a disappointing loss last week for Ole Miss. Uh, so, going to be an interesting one to keep an eye on there. Baylor and Texas Tech, game number five, 7.30 p.m. kickoff on ESPN2. Both teams, four and three. Both teams having disappointing seasons. Very evenly matched uh, contest here uh, in terms of the pick em. You know, it's like a 51-49 split from the analyst. And when you look at the stats of these two teams, you know, these are two as evenly matched teams as you're going to find both offensively and defensively. So I know I said it last week. Uh, with the Texas Tech-West Virginia game, but I feel in my heart that, you know, it, it'll ring true with this week. Texas Tech and Baylor look for a lot of offense, high-scoring affair, a lot of offensive yards being put up on the board, uh, you know, between two, four, and three teams that I think believe they both should be doing better uh, at this point on the year. And then uh, final game of the week, uh, 8 p.m. kickoff on ACC Network. Pitt travels to Chapel Hill and takes on the North Carolina Tar Heels uh, who are ranked 21st in the country right now. Pitt at 4-3 and have had a couple of disappointing losses this year, uh, especially to Georgia Tech and Louisville. Uh, you know, a couple of tough losses there. But North Carolina, of course, only one loss on the season to Notre Dame at home, uh, undefeated in, in, uh, in division play as of now with the Coastal Division. So, you know, it's an interesting game here for North Carolina because if you win this one, it puts you into the driver's seat, essentially, uh, for the Coastal but a pit win here would just add to the coastal chaos that we've gotten used to seeing over the years. And you got to wonder, you know, Pitt always plays North Carolina very tough. Pitt's won the last two. Of course, those two games were played in Pittsburgh. Uh, so this is the first time in quite a few seasons that, that Pitt will be in Chapel Hill. Uh, you know, so a tough game for the Hills. Uh, and, uh, you know, Pitt's got to be looking, you know, especially their head coach, Pat Narduzzi, Got to be looking for a good bounce back win here to keep their name in the discussion, so to speak, in terms of conference play. Those are my six games of the week you ought to be keeping an eye on uh, this coming Saturday. We've already had a couple of Thursday and Friday or thir Thursday night games uh, have occurred, and of course, there's some Friday night action uh, coming up tonight as you listen to this the day that it is aired. But we'll get into those scores next week. Uh, as always, be part of the conversation. Let me know what you're going to be watching this weekend on our Twitter account at Chatting Yardage. The extra point. The extra point this week goes to Jackson State. Of course, led by head coach Primetime Deion Sanders. You've seen him in the news plenty uh, with all the things that he's doing at the small university. Jackson State this year, though, also a 7-0 star. Just a, an incredible season. Uh, there and with that program. Well, this Saturday, they're going to be taking on Southern University, who is 5-2 and two, and a big rival of Jackson State. That's a 2 p.m. kickoff on ESPN3. But the fun thing about this game is that Jackson State will actually be playing host to College Game Day on Saturday morning for the very first time. So again, it cannot be understated what Deion Sanders has been able to do for the Jackson State program in his time there, really putting a good spotlight on not only Jackson State, uh, but the SWAC, the, the SWAC conference uh, this season especially. So playing us out this week is the Jackson State University Marching Band with their fight song, Cheer Boys. Until next week, this has been Chatting Yardage. I'm Cam Matthews.
This has been the Chatting Yardage Podcast, brought to you by Sports Drink. Want to be part of the conversation? Follow the show on Twitter at Chatting Yardage. We'll see you next week for another brand new episode.